Okay, the scripture this morning is 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9. So please stand for the reading of God's word. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth, men of depraved minds, who as far as faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. The word of the Lord. Well, I hope you feel encouraged after that. Um, By the way, I want to talk, just touch on something before I get into the body of this. Uh, It talks about these people who worm their ways into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. Um, Let me explain a little bit about that. Remember in the the time of Paul, Jesus Christ, um, women generally did not get... An education. I mean, it was the men who went to synagogue and and, and men who learned under the rabbis and things like that. And so women depended on their husbands, if they had one, for instruction. So a lot of times women were not left with the instruction and learning that men had an opportunity to. And so Paul is saying, okay, well, people, these false teachers are taking advantage of that. I want you to know. Now, you could say weak-willed men and women because we have a lot of people in our culture who are ignorant of the truth of God's word and are susceptible. Just a side note, that was for free this morning. Maybe you've heard about the man who was told, cheer up, things could be worse. So he said, I did as I was told, I cheered up, and sure enough, things got worse. (laughs) Ever felt like that? That's the essence almost, or maybe it really is, of what Paul writes in this message to Timothy. The Apostle Paul is writing from a prison cell in Rome, knowing that his own death is imminent. And he's warning his young disciple, Timothy, of difficult days to come. And although he never loses faith in God, it's clear that the aged Apostle was deeply concerned about the trends that he saw all around him. Right then. You know, sometimes we look at this and say, you know, well, in the last days, there are going to be these horrible things. Well, Paul was seeing these things in his day. 
What is it about? There's nothing new under the sun. So, he's telling Timothy, hard times are coming, days of stress are just around the corner. If a man was not ready, if he wasn't spiritually prepared in advance, he might be overcome when things got really intense. And we know that has happened. You know, the, the fire gets turned up and, as we say, people bail. And Paul even mentions at times people who had turned their backs on the faith and walked away because of the pressure that they were under. So, Paul's concern then that Christians be aware of the signs of a godless culture and be prepared to face those pressures that living in that culture would be would place upon them. It's unavoidable. And I think we could all agree that we as a nation, are in moral and spiritual decline. We've turned our backs on the truth of Scripture and we've made up our own rules. In 1988, evangelical philosopher and theologian Carl Henry made a stunning prediction in his book, Twilight of a Great Civilization. He said that as America progressively loses its Judeo-Christian heritage, paganism would grow bolder. What we, what, and this is his writing, what we saw in the last half of the 20th century was a benign humanism. But he predicted that at the start of the 21st century, we would have a situation not unlike the first century when the Christian faith confronted raw paganism. Humanism with a pretty face ripped off, revealing the angry monster underneath. And his words have come true and are coming truer each passing day. The New Living Translation, and I'm sharing this, verses 2 through 5 of the passage that Dean read for us this morning. This is the New Living Translation. Again, verses 2 through 5. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. And folks, our effectiveness as followers of Jesus Christ lies in avoiding the pitfalls of a godless culture that we find ourselves in. We talk about we cannot be sucked in. Paul and Peter, both Paul and Peter, offer descriptions of what the culture will look like in the last times. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And you can safely say that any false teaching is a, a teaching taught by demons. That's where it comes from. Second Peter 3, 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And in Colossians 2.8, 
It says, don't let anyone fool you by using senseless arguments. In others, it talks about the vain philosophy of our world. Other translations. Don't let anyone fool you by using senseless arguments. These arguments may sound wise, but they are only human teachings. They come from the powers of this world and not from Christ. So the marks of a godless culture, that's what, Paul is referring to in this passage, uh, in this part of the letter that he's written to Timothy. We need to be aware of the changes that take place in our generation. Recognizing that perilous times are setting in. For example, winter does not blow in suddenly, although sometimes we wonder. You know, when we have those uh, September mornings that are 8 degrees But most of the time, um, the days shorten, the temperatures grow cooler, leaves fall from the trees, birds fly south to escape the coming cold. One morning, frost appears on the ground. It's God's warning to His creation. The carefree days of summer are over. Winter is coming. The signs of coming winter. Be prepared for difficult days are ahead. And in the same way, living in the last days means being prepared to endure perilous, difficult, dangerous times. Ray Steadman, referring to our commenting on our text today, said this. So when I read that, that passage of Scripture, even as a boy, I was aware that this passage was taken by many to predict the last days of the church. But I was unaware that many similar times had come into human history during the course of the 2,000 years since the first appearing of our Lord. Many people take the phrase, these last days, to refer to the time just before Christ's return. But the biblical usage of that phrase indicates that it refers to the whole period of time between the first coming of our Lord and His second coming. In other words, for 2,000 years we've been living in the last days. And even Paul and Peter, when they lived, thought that Jesus would be returning any time. See, they were living in the last, we've been living in the last days ever since. In the account in Acts chapter 2, we read that on the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted the prophecy of Joel in which the prophet said that in the last days, God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. That, Peter said, was beginning to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost almost 2,000 years ago. The first words of the book of Hebrews are, In many ways, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So it is clear from that that the last days is a period which has now grown to 2,000 years' duration. It's a lot lot of last days, isn't it? But remember that the Scripture also tells us that with God, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Apostle Paul is saying that within this extended period of time, there will come repetitive cycles of distress, times of stress, perilous times, when all the conditions which he describes with these chilling words will be evidenced. 
there have been other times in history when it's looked like this. Maybe not as bad, maybe worse. I don't know. I, didn't, I wasn't there. So as we look back through human history during these last 2,000 years, we can see how true that is. Again and again in our Western world, we have had periods of relative peace and prosperity, only to have them interrupted by these terrible times of stress and agony that repeatedly have come into human affairs. So these words are not necessarily a prediction of the very last days of the church. Rather, they are a recognition of the cycle of days that this cycle of days will keep coming. They happen again and again. And of course, of course, one of them is going to be the last cycle. And I know there are a lot of people out there right now saying this is the one. But you know what? There have been a lot of people in cycles before that have said this is the one. I remember my, my Aunt Mary telling me that leading up to World War II, there were a lot of couples that decided they'd hurry up and get married because they thought the end of the world was coming. I mean, look at what's happening. A world war. Can it get any worse? This must be it. She said those, a lot of those marriages didn't last, too, because people got married for the wrong reason. But So we're not the only ones that have said this has got to be the last cycle. And I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying that it's looked pretty rough throughout our history at times before this, too. So, whether we are living in those times, the last cycle is, is difficult to say. Perhaps we are. Surely these times of stress we live in exactly fit this description that the Apostle gives here. We can see all of these factors in the world we live in. But whether this is the actual last cycle to come into history before Jesus comes back, I would not dare to say. As in the past, the clouds of peril may disperse and the sun may be break out again. That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? Some degree of peace and prosperity may return again to our world. And so how terrible are the times that Paul refers to? Well, the word translated, translated terrible here is, usually, is used only one other time in the New Testament. And some, it depends on the version you read. Terrible times, difficult times, perilous times. But this word translated terrible, perilous, difficult is used only one other time in the New Testament. That's in Matthew chapter 8 where we find it used to describe the two Gergesene demoniacs. Remember Jesus crossed the lake? That Jesus found these guys dwelling among the tombs. They were dangerous and violent men, and that is the sense of the word here. Dangerous and violent. Those are the times we live in. These days will be fierce, menacing, and dangerous. And you don't, you don't have to think, think about it very long to realize that his words have come true, and more so, it seems, as time passes. These indicators of the last times that Paul lists have always been present. It's just that we will see them, I think, in greater measure as the time of Jesus' return draws near. Because we know the Scripture tells us that Satan's going to be—he's going to be able to wreak more havoc in our world as the time of Jesus' return draws near. And so, there's no doubt that the feeling of many is that. 
that we are in the last cycle of difficult days before the return of Jesus. So again, back to the marks of a godless culture then. And by the way, when it says a godless culture, it doesn't mean there aren't gods. In fact, there are way too many of them. Small g gods, gods we have made up. The creations in our, the hearts and minds of men. You know, uh, the prophet Isaiah talks sometimes about how crazy it is that someone would go out and take a log and carve an idol out of it, and, and it can't stand up on its own, so he has to prop it up. And then he uses the stuff that he didn't use to make the idol to, to, to make a fire with and cook his food over. And he's saying, think about that, folks. How much sense does that make? We have a lot of small g gods in our culture. But what, what Paul is saying here is that we have turned our backs on only God, capital G. So, verses 1 through 4 talk about a misplaced love. A godless culture is characterized above all by a love for self. Me, me, me. One's own needs and interests come first. The emphasis is upon, and we hear this all the time, the rights of the individual. In fact, that's an excuse for a lot of stuff that's going on in our culture today. But let me tell you that God's more interested in your righteousness than your rights. So it's a love of self, and what happens then is we become... Because we love self, we desire things that will make us happy or feel better or make life more enjoyable for us. So we become lovers of money. And the scripture said that the love, says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say the root of all evil. It says all kinds of evil. And you don't have to, again, you don't have to look far to see how that is true. <clears throat> the desire to have money... And oftentimes, the power that goes with us leads to all kinds of terrible stuff. And it happens all over our planet. You know, uh, we used to talk about these you know, corrupt governments in other countries. Well, it's kind of tough to talk about corrupt government, governments in other countries. We've cut up because we've had our own issues here for a long time. But, you know, we'd say, well, look how... Look how uh, deprived and poor these people are because the people at the top, they're skimming everything. It doesn't go down the line. It's the love of money. And we, we see, again, we see the truth of that every day in the world we live in. Not just our world here, but around our planet. Well, we also become lovers of pleasure, it says, rather than God. What will make me happy? For a minute, or five, or ten, or an hour, or a few days, or and what's happened is we have poor, we put the emphasis on happiness instead of joy, haven't we? You know, happy is. I mean, joy can be an outward expression, but that's all that happy is. It's a surface thing. Joy is a subsurface. It goes down deep. It's what holds you strong when circumstances around you aren't happy. Right? I remember uh, we were at our daughter's home 
early in December, and we went to uh, their church, and the pastor was talking about that old song, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Remember that? Got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. So the problem is that with that is that's where we want to keep it, and we forget to let it out sometimes. <laughs> Holy Spirit, stay down in my heart. I don't want you to spill out or anything and do something crazy. And so Jesus, remember Jesus' warning to, in the book of Revelations, to the, to the, the church at Ephesus? You remember what he said? Yet I hold this against you, have you, hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. It's a love for self, it's a love for money, it's a love for pleasure. Those things become our loves instead of Jesus Christ. And he gets pushed into the background, and you can't do that. Uh, what is it that um, John Maxwell said? Jesus, he said, Lord of all, or he's Lord of nothing at all. So, let's, the rest of this list, really you could say, if you look at the heart of it, springs from self-love. Boastfulness, pride. We're abusive. Because it's all about me. I don't care how this impacts you. Disobedience to parents. You know, parents are the basic authority figure in our lives. And our culture is taking that authority away. Ungrateful. You owe me. God owes me. I deserve this. And what happens then is we're not grateful. We don't thank God because, hey, I deserve this. I don't thank you because, hey, I deserve this. Unholy. Begins in the heart, doesn't it? That's where holiness is. That's where unholiness is. It's in the heart. And just as holiness should reveal itself in our behavior, unholiness reveals itself in our behavior as well. Amen? Without love. We talk much about love in our culture. We throw that word around like paint slopped on a wall by some of these artists that, you know, you've seen those things. And it sells for 10 grand. You know what I'm talking about? That's kind of how we throw... But we just... We don't understand what God's talking about when He talks about love. See, our love is conditional. It's based on what you do for me. How you perform. It's conditional. Our, our, our definition of love is flawed. And, and so... You know, in, in, in the Greek culture, there was... There were, I think, actually four words for love, and I forget one of them. But agape love, agapao, agapao is what they call it. It's, that un- it's like God loves us. It's unconditional. And then there's the, uh, the phileo, which is the brotherly love, which that's a nice thing, but it has its limits. And then there was eros, which is kind of that sexual attraction, easily becomes lust kind of love, and not... Unfortunately, I think we kind of put a lot of emphasis on that one in our culture, and I think we see it all around us. Without love, we've got what we call love, but it isn't what God calls love. Unforgiving. 
Yeah. Here's the problem with that. We just don't understand when we're unforgiving the damage that it does to us. We're thinking, we think that being unforgiven, you know, sticks a knife between the ribs of the person we're not forgiving when actually we're stabbing ourselves. But we see it all the time. And we're seeing it right now. We're seeing it right now. Slanderous. And I think I made reference to this in my prayer today. We need to be careful about this because sometimes it's easy to hit back when we're slandered. You slander me, I slander you. I talk, you talk poorly about me, I talk poorly about you. And sometimes that doesn't even have to happen. They don't have to ter- talk poorly about us and we'll still talk poorly about them. You know what I'm saying? Without self-control, oh my goodness, we see this all the time. Woo. And, and it's evidenced in so many ways. I think in, all, in our sexual attitudes, in the issues we have sometimes with addictions, um, even, even in the way that we dis we express our displeasure in the world we live in right now without self-control. We're brutal. We're not lovers of the good. You know what? That has a lot to do with the fact that we do not define good the way God does. We're not lovers of the good. We're lovers of the good, all right, by our definition. But you remember the prophet said, there's a time, and it's here, when good will be called evil, and evil will be called good. And if evil is good in your mind, then you might love that kind of good. It's just that you're not loving the good that God says is good. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We're treacherous. We're rash. That's to proceed with undue haste without deliberation or caution. In other words, you're not thinking about where you're headed here or what you're going to say. We're just, it just comes out. It's my right. We're conceited. Who? Nasty list. But then he goes on to say we have a faulty faith. Look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with the, these people who, who live that way, who show that in their lives. Have you ever gone into one of those stores where they sell uh, like blue jeans that are imperfect? You know, when they're folded up in the stack, they look good. Then you put them on and the seam goes like this. Oh, or one leg is short. and You, you know what I'm saying? You might, just, you might even hold them up at first and say, well, they look pretty good. I think I'll buy them. And then you get them home and try it on and it's like, oh, no. I would never wear these. You know, they're, they look like blue jeans. They're made of denim. They still have a zipper in pockets, but something's not quite right. And that's what Paul's talking about here, a form of godliness. Well, on the outside, it looks pretty good. 
I'm going to talk about two different concerns here. First of all is empty Christianity that results in playing church. In other words, we go through the motions, we know the language, we wear the name tag. We'd say Christian here somewhere. Christian. We wear the name tag. We go. But there's no evidence of the power of God in our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are rules taught by men. The other concern is the cultic distortions that contain enough truth to deceive those who lack understanding. Just enough truth. You know, that's, what, that's kind of what Satan tried to pull on Jesus. The problem was he was dealing with the author of the Scripture. Oh, can't fool him. Cultic distortions that contain enough truth to deceive those who lack understanding. Knowing a little bit of the truth is like knowing a little bit of karate. You have just enough knowledge to go out and get yourself hurt. <clears throat> right, Dean? Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. And we're going to talk a little bit about how to protect ourselves from that in in a moment. Then finally, a rejected truth. That's verses 6 through 9. Those are the kind who worm their ways into homes and gain control. Um, they're swayed, swayed by evil desires, always learning, but never able, never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so, they also, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But don't worry, they're not going to get far, Paul says. A, a godless culture is characterized by the denial of truth as absolute and acceptance of truth as relative. In other words... It changes. Or, your truth's not my truth. My truth's not your truth. My, oh, I get confused. In the pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer writes about the distinction between scribes and prophets in one of his chapters. He says that a scribe is one who studies and recites to others what he is reading. He may not understand it, acknowledge the truth of it, or allow it to transform his life. A prophet, on the other hand, is telling others of his first-hand encounter of experiencing God and being in His presence. It's it's life-changing and leads others into the same experience and acknowledgement of the truth. Romans 1.25 tells us, and again, Paul, I think, is dealing with the kind of culture that he speaks of here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, 
For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to right teachings. They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever they want to hear. They will reject the truth and follow strange myths. Oh my goodness. How many of those are there out there? Like, uh, there are many roads to heaven. That's a good one. Um, We talked about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And Paul gives a warning to those who reject the, the Paul gives a warning that those who reject the truth can do so for only so long. And for sooner or later they're going to be confronted with it. The truth that they reject will ultimately win out and they will be found out. <clears throat> Paul gives the example of Janus and Jambres. These two men whose names were not mentioned earlier in the Bible are the magicians who opposed Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. They rejected the truth and their magic was defeated and they were exposed as charlatans. (laughs) We've been reading through that in our year-long Bible, you know. Moses and, you know, there was a few tricks that they could replicate. Did you remember that? There were a few tricks they could replicate. Demonic power, it's, it's got some, it's able to do a few things out there. But then God starts, oh, by the way, I think I've told you this before. Did you know every one of the plagues flew in the face of one of the Egyptian gods? Here's what the Egyptian god will protect you from, and here's what God did, and that Egyptian god was proven to be false, not real. So, you know, these guys with their demonic influence and power were able to do a few things, but then God started doing things, and um, it's like they were left... Uh oh, we're in trouble now. And that's what he's saying here. The magicians who opposed Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh, they rejected the truth and their magic was defeated and they were exposed. And that's going to be true with anyone who's preaching a false gospel, even in our culture today. They will be exposed. So, all these things that, that Paul talks about, how do we avoid the pitfalls? Well, number one, we maintain our relationship with Jesus. That begins with obedience. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and He will come to them and make our home. We will come to them and make our home with them. We have to maintain our relationship with Jesus. And by the way, that doesn't happen by wearing a crucifix around your neck or saying God bless you. Or See, it involves things like connection with other believers. Remember a couple of Sundays ago, I talked about the fact that the Christian life is to be lived in community. We're not intended to be lone rangers. We need one another. <clears throat> and a lot of that happens when we come together for worship as as a corporate body of Christ. Right? This is it. This is where a lot of that happens. And then there are other opportunities. Some of those aren't happening as frequently now as they did before COVID, where the body of Christ has opportunity to come together in fellowship and worship and mutual encouragement and love for one another and bearing one another's burdens and all those things that happen so well in this context right here. Prayer. We have to be people of prayer. 
We do. I think one of the evidences that there is an enemy in the world, well, there's two things that really are clear to me. One is the fact that um, we use the name of God and His Son Jesus as swear words. I think that's pretty clear evidence that there's an enemy out there who hates God. One of the other ones is the way he fights us regarding prayer. I just don't have time. What am I going to say? I get tired of saying the same things over and over again. I find that sometimes myself. It's like, boy, God, are you tired of hearing? You know, we've got a lot of excuses for not praying, and Satan just prays on that. He loves it. He takes that ball and runs with it. And he says, you're right. You're way too busy. And besides... Does prayer do any good? Does prayer do any good? So, we have to fight that. We have to fight those urges, that resistance, because we have to be people of prayer. And then, we are called to be salt and light in our world. Matthew 5:13 and 14 You are the salt of the earth you are the light of the world a city on on a hill cannot be hidden Salt tends to do a couple of things number 1 it seasons and boy does our world need some seasoning right now doesn't it But it also makes you thirsty when you have enough salt And hopefully the lives we live before others make people thirsty to know the Jesus that we know Yes And light illuminates. It shows the way. That's nice. It also exposes. That's not so nice. The light of God exposes evil. And that's not so nice. Evil reacts to that. But if we're light, we'll not only show the way, But our lives will expose. And by the way, we are not light producers. We do not generate light within ourselves. We are light reflectors like the planets or the moon. We're not like stars that generate light. We're reflectors of the light of Jesus Christ. It's His light that shines from us. And then we... This one is critical and it, it... to to everything we've talked about, and that is know the Scriptures and live the Scriptures. So so many people are deceived because they, they do not know the truth of God. You can tell them whatever you want. You can say the Bible says this, and they don't have a clue if it does or not. I used to do this when I was a youth pastor. I used to do this fun little thing with my teen group, and I'd I pull these sayings that we have and say, you know, which one of these are in the Bible? Like, you know, a penny saved is a penny earned. Well, that's got to be in there somewhere. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Sure, that sounds good. You know, that kind of a thing. And so if you're not, if you, if you're not a student of the Scripture, how will you know? I... <clears throat> 
You know, Paul commended the Bereans because when he preached to them, they went and searched the Old Testament scriptures to see if what he saying, was saying was true. They were not going to be. They were not going to buy into something that was not true. They were not going to be led astray. In the same chapter, second, excuse me, second Timothy three fourteen through seventeen. Same chapters are the text today. 14 through 17. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes from trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. Howard Hendricks once said, and I, I don't know if this is really, I think it's true in some cases, but in a lot of cases not so much. Maybe in the church more, or people who've been in the church for a long time. He said this, most of us know more scripture than we put into practice already. That doesn't speak very well either. And so as important as it is to be hearers of the Word, know when the pastor preaches, and readers of the Word, and even students of the Word, these all fall short if we do not live the Word. It's got to make a difference in our lives. Philippians previous chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all you have to do without grumbling or arguing so that you may be God's children, blameless, sincere, and wholesome, living in a warped and diseased world and shining like lights in a dark place, for you hold in your hands the very word of life. I hope we do. And so as nasty as all of this sounds, let me remind you of what Jesus said. Because this is a note we need to finish on today, and that's this. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. You take that one to the bank. But take heart. With all this nasty list of stuff, take heart. I have overcome. Father, I know that, um, boy, even in my growing up years, and especially now, we have a lot of students of the Scripture who are looking at things like we have looked at today, these marks of God's culture today. This is it. We're right on the edge. Because people were saying that back in the 70s, well, 60s, 70s, 80s. Reading that book, 88, why Jesus will come in 1988. Oh, it sounded so good, and here we are. And the point is, 
I think, for us is to take heed of what Paul says in this passage as he wrote to Timothy. You need to be, you need to have your antennas up. You need to know that these things are going to happen. But don't be defeated by them. Don't buy into them. Don't let the world sway you. Don't let them, the world mold you into its culture. We're called to live differently. We're to be salt. We're to be light. We're to, we're to maintain. Work out our salvation the spirit with fear and trembling. We're to work on a relationship with Jesus. Stand on the truth that we know is truth. To know the Scripture and to live the Scripture. Because we can know the Scripture by heart. We can quote it chapters at a time. But, Father, if it doesn't make a difference in our lives, then it's empty and it's meaningless to us. Oh, that we would be Your people. And, Lord God, I... I I'm convinced that we have the opportunity and the power of the Holy Spirit to make a difference. We We can influence our world. We can we can be the ones, Father, who as as your Holy Spirit works through us, have such impact that but when we look around, we don't we don't see these things growing, but changing in a positive way. I, I pray that that may that be the desire of our hearts and the mission of our church and the work of the Holy Spirit. Really, that softening, that gentle, that compassionate, that loving, that holy influence in the world where we live. And knowing that someday, Lord God, you are going to sort this all out. And that those who have sought to let us lead us astray will be called to account. But in the meantime, we will be people who won't just buy into anything we hear, no matter who says it. But we'll search the scriptures to find out what's true. Thank you for the joy and the opportunity and the privilege and freedom we have together that we have today. Lord God, may may we work these things over that we've heard this morning in our hearts and minds so that we have a clear understanding of what you're saying to us. And then as you give us, take care of us. Father, I ask you.